Okay, let's go ahead and get started tonight. We are going to take a practical application of what we looked at last week, which was a study of types and symbols, and what designated a type, what designated a symbol, and uh, how do you go about interpreting them? Because that's always the big question. How do you interpret these things? And so part of what we have to realize is that you have to approach the Bible like you would any other book. You approach it as it's written literally. I mean, you approach it that way until it takes you in another direction and tells you that there is something that is that is symbolic, there's something that is parabolic. It will let you know so you don't have to speculate and try to read anything into it. So that's part of what we did last week was looking at the difference between types and symbols, kind of where some of the um, uh, different thought processes went through the history of the church. So now we're going to take a look at the Tabernacle of Moses. I haven't yet decided how much we're going to take a look at the Tabernacle of Moses. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. It truly is. I've taught it four or five times and and, uh, can still do a lot of it from memory. But it's a a fascinating topic, but it's, it's... comes into a lot of times some very questionable interpretations about different things. So what we're going to look for is the, we've, we've pretty well got the rules figured out. That's called hermeneutics. What rules do you use to interpret various things? And then we're going to try and take a look at what the tabernacle is representing. And so to do that, spiritual things require spiritual discernment. So believers need to realize that this is of the Spirit of God. It's not open to private interpretation. But it also realizes that the Holy Spirit inspired, I believe, every single letter of of the Word, every single letter of the written Word. And when you believe that, then there's some other corollaries that come out of that, and we'll talk about that a little later. Before we begin, though, let's just take this moment for prayer, present ourselves to the throne of grace, and ask that the Holy Spirit be our real teacher. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your amazing grace. Thank you for your marvelous plan. Thank you for the opportunity to once again look into your word and consider your word. And Father, I pray that you just lead and guide us. The Holy Spirit would enlighten us and help us to understand and remember what is here in your word and that we would be able to use it wisely. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach the tabernacle, I know everybody in there jaunt through the scriptures. If they get past Genesis 5 and 10, they eventually end up in the book of Exodus. And then it's really cool. The first part is all about Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt. And then you get them out, out of Egypt in Exodus 15. And the Egyptian armies drowned in the Red Sea. And they end up at Sinai. And the next thing you know, the Lord starts giving Moses instructions. And part of those instructions, starting in chapter 25, deal with constructing a portable tent. That's literally what it is. A tabernacle means a tent. And when it comes into the New Testament Greek, it comes as a skene. That's the word for tent. And so you have really a portable moving uh, tent. And that's what the tabernacle is. Now, as you try to put this together, of course, a lot of people with 
kind of engineering desires. They may not be good engineers, but desires try to figure out how it all fits together and how it all works. And it works beautifully is how it works. If you've ever seen a full-scale model, they had one that traveled through Oklahoma City probably eight or ten years ago, and I didn't get to go out to see it. But it was a full-scale traveling model of the tabernacle and was quite something to behold. I talked to several people that saw it, and they said it was it was something to get a, a picture of what this this thing really was like. Now, there's going to be some specific instructions given to Moses. And he said, you're going to have to pay attention to them. I want you to do all things according to the pattern that I show you I've shown you on the mountain. So whenever he went down and gave the instructions to the workers on the tabernacle, he said it's got to be just exactly right. We don't want any deviations in these whatsoever. Now, the tabernacle was an elaborate and expensive portable sanctuary. When you start looking at the gold that is connected into this, the gold itself is is significant as far as the weight goes so is the silver also the bronze that is those are all significant amounts of how much was used to produce these various things it was uh, constructed by Israel at Sinai in the days of Moses now the Jews came to Sinai in 1445 BC we're able to date that as we move forward from the uh, fall of Adam, we move forward to the fourth year of Solomon, which we're able to date at 965, 966 B.C. And then 1 Kings 6, 1 tells us that from the giving of the law to the fourth year of Solomon is 480 years. So we're able to move backwards from 965, 480 years, and we get 1445 B.C. as to the time of the Exodus. So shortly after they came out of Egypt, these instructions were given to Moses. Its existence was authorized as part of the Mosaic Law. Exodus chapters 25 to 31 and chapters 35 to 40, and it'll give some very specific instructions. One thing you'll find out, though, is that there's some things that it didn't tell us the exact dimensions of. And so you have to stop and figure those out and figure out, now how did this fit? Because it didn't quite tell us. And you'll notice when you start adding up the sizes of the uh, inside linens, for example. One set of linens was nine inches short of touching the ground. And another was a little bit longer than that. And so why were these things done in the way in which they were done? Now, there's four noteworthy features of the tabernacle. First, it was practical. It was constructed from material the people already had and was ideal for a nomadic existence. Whenever they got ready to leave, it was something that they could, they could drop the sides of the tabernacle, they could drop the tent, they could cover up the Ark of the Covenant, they could put the poles and take the poles and they'd never see the Ark of the Covenant because of the way it was covered up by the outer coverings and they could take that Ark and walk and move to wherever God moved the cloud to and told them, put down your, your, your tents here. This is what you want to do. I want you to go from here to here. And so they could move it. And they carried it with them out there for 40 years. So um, it was very practical. And again, made from stuff that the people had with them or was there available in the area which, which they existed. 
It was very artistic. Uh, once completed, it was a thing of beauty. Now, it's fascinating to look at because to put all this together, I'm sure you've all seen models of the tabernacle. Probably heard this taught uh, multiple times. Um, I guess we still have a model over there in the other building, one of the smaller models we used to teach the kids with. But it was truly a thing of beauty. It was an, it was an architectural dream. It fit together wonderfully, and it had a, a, a beauty to it. Most of the beauty was on the inside, though, of the tabernacle itself. That's where the real beauty was found. Now, it was symbolic. <clears throat> Various parts, separately and in concept, foreshadow the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. See, we're not, we're not launching off into never-never land here in trying to understand and interpret the symbolism that's here. We're told that this is symbolic. We're in Hebrews 8, verse 4. If, if he, the Lord, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? Because it's tribe of Levi. It says, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. He's talking there in the context about the tabernacle, the offerings, the sacrifices offered by the Levitical priest. And it says they serve, what did he call it? A copy and a shadow. Okay, It's not the real thing. A shadow is not the real thing. A shadow just cast it. It has to have the real thing and light behind it in order to cast a shadow. And he says, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, it says, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given these instructions, and he said, you better get these right. You better get these right. Now, it's also spiritual. It was spiritual, and that was designed as an elaborate teaching aid to instruct the Jews in the doctrines of soteriology. Those are doctrines of salvation. And Christology, those are doctrines of the Messiah. Who was he, and what did he do? Soteriology and Christology. So the whole tabernacle is designed to do that. And you'll notice the Lord, I mean, there's some things that ought to pop into your head real fast when you think about the table of showbread that's just on the inside of the holy place. <clears throat> and Jesus said, I'm the bread came down out of heaven. What did he say? I am the bread. The table of showbread was about him. He says, I am the light of the world. That's the golden lampstand that was also inside of the holy place. And he was the high priest, which is the altar of incense, represented by the altar of incense. So he identified himself with all these things. Plus, he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which takes us right to the bronze altar on the outside. So the whole thing lays out a beautifully significant story as to, as to what is the role of Christ, what did he come to do, and... Um, uh, the third point here is note some important elements of hermeneutics. <clears throat> the recipients did not have to initially understand all of the symbolism or the types. Now, some people, when they start to study these things, believe that when the Lord inspired 
when he inspired the writer of scripture to write down these things that if they were communicating those people had to be able to understand it in order for uh, in order for us to understand it properly we have to understand it the way they understood it back then but <clears throat> on the other side of the coin is that every single jot and tittle is inspired of God uh, Isaiah 28 10 and 13 every single bit of God's word is inspired so why did he inspire a certain word to be in there in a certain place in a certain word order in a certain sequence in a certain form because it had significance to it and we have to view it I believe that way whenever <clears throat> when we start looking at this and we start asking questions because it's real easy to try and limit things so we don't have to think much uh, we're we're and sin natures are inherently lazy, so we don't want to do any more than we have to do. And a lot of times when we want to start learning the Bible, we think, well, I want to know it all now. Come on, God, give me three, I'll give you three weeks, and I want to learn everything that I can possibly learn out of your, out of your word in the next three weeks, and we'll find out it takes longer than that. I know a lot of people that um, study all their life, and they'll tell you real fast, about how many things they still don't understand and still don't know. Dr. Ryrie was one of, one of those people. He was fascinating to talk to, a brilliant, absolutely brilliant man, but one of the most humble men that I've, I've ever run into because he would get up every morning early, 5, 5.30, and go study. And this guy, you would think, already knew it all. And he's the first to admit, no, i got more to learn. There's more to learn here. So... What, <clears throat> what some people do is limit themselves when they start trying to study types and symbols. They start trying to put them in a little box over here and take this box and shove it out of the way and get it out of the way instead of really trying to dig in and see what the Lord has in store for them. Now, did those people fully understand everything that the tab tabernacle symbolized when it was built? I don't think so. Why would we expect them to? What they're seeing is a structure going up, but the structure was designed by God. And so what is he in the course of doing? How many books of the Bible are written by the time of the construction of the tabernacle? Two <laughs> out of the 66, Job and Genesis. That's it. So what about progressive revelation? takes a while to get it all revealed that's the way God chose to do it now if you think about it this follows the pattern of prophecy where the recipient of the prophecy did not necessarily understand what had just been revealed he didn't necessarily understand it Daniel said what does this mean well sometimes the angel would tell him and sometimes he said no Daniel that's not for you to know that's chapter 12 this is sealed up to the end time. Many people will come and go. But but no, Daniel, I'm not going to tell you. John, okay, what does this mean? Not going to tell you that one. I'll tell you this other one. But this is the way that God has revealed himself throughout the scripture. And it, it is called progressive revelation. doesn't mean liberal revelation. It means progressive revelation where... 
Here's the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3. And then we get, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. Then he shall come through the line of Jesse. And we get all the prophecies that go along with that. That's a progressive revelation of who Messiah would be. Now, prophecy is a good example of that. And as we remember from last week, types are inherently prophetic. Okay? There are things that the prophets saw that maybe they saw, but they couldn't understand. They had no idea of what they were about. Types are inherently prophetic. So as God progressively reveals his plan, more and more the typology and symbolism are able to be understood. Now how many more books were written by the time they got through to, uh, by the time of uh, Solomon? Well, if you look at Solomon, you've got what? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges is done, and part of 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Oh, you've got more done, right? So what happens there? It's What's going on in 1 Samuel? What's going on in in uh, judges, you got Ruth in there too as well. So you, you've got you've got these other books that start revealing more and more who Messiah is going to be. And so in each instance, I'm convinced that the tabernacle, they could look at the tabernacle and go, oh, I see that now. I see that now. I didn't see it before, but I see that now. I, <laughs> Bobby Joyner, old friend of mine, sent me a a deal this morning. He said, I was talking to my barber. And my barber said <clears throat> that Yahweh, when you pronounce it, and if you pronounce it correctly, he said, listen to what it does. Yahweh is the way we pronounce it. We don't put any emphasis on anything. But he says, there are no vowels. True statement. There are no vowels in the Hebrew. They get added on later. There are none in the tetragrammaton and Yahweh and it says really if you pronounce it correctly it goes Yahweh the inhale is Yah exhale is Weh what is that? breathing you are, you are in a way when you pronounce it correctly speaking the name of the Lord speaking the name of the Lord with every breath you take isn't that amazing? inhale exhale and Bobby wrote me, I said, I never thought of that <laughs> before. And it sounds true. And he said, my take on it, exactly. He said, it's just the way God would do something. He'd tuck something in there and let us find it. He keeps adding to it. We're a, inf we're a finite creature trying to explore the infinite depths of God. That's who we are. And we're going to keep getting to know him uh, if we keep looking. The tabernacle was a significant advancement in God's revelation of his plan. Now see, God's not going to design something that is really going to be outdated. It's, it, the tabernacle wasn't outdated. It was better understood as time went on. It would serve for almost 500 years. How long they move that thing around the wilderness? From the time of the Exodus, 1445, until the temple was built, 480 years, 1 Kings 6.1. So <clears throat> it, it took its place. 
the temple included much of what the tabernacle had with the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the table of showbread, it, uh, the altar of incense, and included things, but it added new stuff in, which is kind of what you would expect. And then as you go from 965 B.C. and you start going on through the other prophets like Isaiah, by the time you get to Isaiah, oh, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. Uh, you get multiple prophecies found in the book of Isaiah that are absolutely uh, beautiful. And that, that temple would add some new symbolism into it for people to continue to look at. Now, <clears throat> the service of the tabernacle included instructions for uh, the Levitical priest. Okay? What, who the Levitical priests were, what they did. You got the different tribes there of Levi, and they are groups that are assigned specific tasks. Some of them get to offer the sacrifices. Some of them get to, to move things, to watch over the utensils and to take care of them properly, uh, serve them and sanitize them. And then the offerings. Now when you get to the off offerings, Exodus uh, chapter 28 and chapter 39 uh, are two of the chapters that deal with the offerings. But then when you get into Leviticus... Leviticus, the first five chapters are about the burnt offering, the grain offering, or what I call the gift offering, the peace offering, chapter 3, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. So you have five offerings that all portray what the Lamb of God would do to take away the sin of the world. All of them would. And Hebrews chapter 9 talks to us about those being symbolic. They're having, they have meaning to them. So when we go back to the tabernacle, what I'm trying to establish when we go back to the tabernacle and seek to interpret the symbolism that's there, it's because we've been told to by the New Testament. We have a New Testament authority that says, go back, take a look, see what you can find out. Now, <clears throat> the next little uh, thing I'm going to do here is something that always causes a lot of fun. Uh, I've, I've seen uh, the biblical symbolism of numbers. I, I've seen um, some real wacky stuff happen <laughs> with this, just to be real honest. Uh, sometimes you take certain numbers and, and um, uh, they do all kinds of weird things with them. Now, you don't want to go crazy with numbers, but when you, when you just look at it, uh, there, there is some pretty good identification of what these, what these numbers are all about. Now, we find that uh, the symbolism of numbers, one denotes, the number one denotes unity and commencement. And we would look at that, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord your God is one God. Wouldn't that be the first thing you would look at when you see the number one? One God. That's who we serve. That's who he is. Now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's the, the Trinity, but all are God and all are one. They are indivisible from each other. It's hard to wrap our heads around such things, but that's what, where the truth is found, is figuring out how they all fit together. Now, when we look at two, this is where the, the numbers start to get interesting. 
And where did they come from? People have spent their lives studying these things. And so, I like I say, I've seen people go through and snatch numbers out of midair, and then they start reading things into the passages and all that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're looking at, we want to find, uh, if you find these numbers within a typological setting, then they can have significance. Okay? If they're outside of a typological setting, then they don't have any significance other than just being a number. We've seen people go through and count up five, five of these things and say, well, it's all about grace. Or three of these things, it's all about the Trinity. Well, if, you, if it's all about the Trinity, what about the, the, uh, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet? That's the wrong trinity, isn't it? So you have to pay attention to the context here. But the symbolism of numbers, one denotes unity, and oftentimes you you got to have the number one to have a number two, right? It's, a, it's the start of something. Why is uh, uh, Genesis in the beginning? Oh, in the beginning, and what happens? The, the one, God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, has started something. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's what, that's what happened. Now, two denotes difference, and frequently opposition, enmity, and division. It also, when they come together, can indicate witness and support. It takes two witnesses to confirm every fact. So when you see the number two, you don't automatically say it's this or that. You have to look at what is the context that goes along with it. But when there's two, there's automatically a difference that's there. But you want the two to be one. See, that's, the, that's what he did when he joined the man and the woman. He took one, and out of the one he made two. See, number one there is kind of the commencement of the act of the human race. So he adds the woman, the female to it. So you have the man and the woman, that's two. And then <clears throat> then there was, uh, uh, everything was fine until the devil got into the middle of them. And when they come together, it indicates witness and the opportunity for support. And that's what husband and wife are supposed to do. He made a helpmate for the man, is what he says. They're supposed to be a support for one another. But look how often you see something that can indicate a division of some kind, such as uh, double-tongued. Okay, Say one thing one time one and another thing another time, kind of like politicians. You know, uh, being double-minded. First chapter of James, don't... Don't ask God and then doubt what he's going to do. That's being double-minded. We don't, we don't want to do that. But two normally denotes um, difference. It can indicate witness. Three denotes completeness, especially of the Trinity. Usually that's what it looks at. So if we're looking at something that involves three as we're looking at the tabernacle, which is clearly a type of the things to come, then we ask, does it mean anything here? It's not that it always does, but does it mean anything? I look to see, is the number spelled out? Or is it inferred? And if it's spelled out, I think it's got a meaning to it. If it's just inferred, then we've got to look farther to justify making a statement. 
Four denotes creative works, and it refers to the material works, because out of the three, he created. Okay, did the Trinity, was the Trinity involved creation? Hmm. Let's see. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And in chapter, the end of chapter 1, start of chapter 2, you get Jehovah, Yahweh. You get the Lord involved. All three of them are involved. When you read John 1, John 1 is the oldest verse in the Bible, and you read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And apart from Him, Jesus, nothing has come into being that has come into being. See, so you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved, and what do they do? Made the heavens and the earth. That's where the number four comes from. Now, I'm not going into it with a lot of great depth right now, but a lot of it has to do with the Hebrew alphabet. And a lot of where the symbolism of numbers came from is following the Hebrew alphabet with the Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. Aleph is a one. And everybody is known for millennia that one that Aleph, the first letter, means one. Bait means two. Gimel means three. Dalit means four. And so these numbers are all assigned to you get down to the last three, and it was 100, 200, 300. 26 consonants that are found in the Hebrew alphabet, and so, or 22. And so you're able to identify numbers that are there. Now part of the problem comes about. Let me tell you where numerical problems come about is when somebody takes a word like, um, oh, they take a word like, uh, let's see if I can do a simple one, gimel. You have a G, an M, and an L as consonants. And so you take their numerical equivalents, let's say like a 7, a 10, and a 14. Okay, and then you add 7, 10, and 14 together, and you get 17, 31. 3 plus 1 equals 4, so therefore it's creative work. Do you, do you see what happened there? They take those and assign numbers to the individual letters. And then they take those numbers and they twist them all around. Now, the uh, guy wrote several books, uh, actually a couple of books, back about 15 years ago. And um, it's kind of like the Da Vinci Code type of stuff. What was the guy's name? Dan somebody. And he had uh, the God Code, basically. And he went through and started saying, if you take this letter over here and this letter over here, and then he started doing hop, skip, and jump letters all the way through the first five books of the Bible. See, there's 304,510 letters, if I remember right, in the first five books of the Bible. The Jews know exactly how many letters are there. Because when they make a copy and they made it by hand, they counted them. Now, how to be the lowest man on the totem pole? You, count those letters. Okay? And be sure they come out right three times, or we're not going to count it. So, <clears throat> but they, get to, they knew how many letters there were. They knew what the center letter of the book was. They were able to see things like that. Well, when you start feeding them through a computer, and then you take uh, the, the bait out of Barah in the first 
letter and then you jump way over here to Leviticus somewhere and pull a letter out of here and then jump over here another whatever, then what you end up with is a bunch of wacky interpretations. And they start looking for things that just don't exist. And the sad thing, they start making prophecies off of those. Uh -uh. That is not the proper use of numbers. You can tell real fast that's not because God did put it out there clear enough we shouldn't need a computer to figure it out okay they're clear they did find some interesting things that showed that it is all a unit of thought that comes from God they found some pattern some uh, letter repeats they go all the way through it and they did find some some fascinating things that to me just say God just zipped it up from the inside to show us that he's the one that inspired it because that wouldn't have happened by, by chance. But the <clears throat> Levitical offerings, the symbolism, the, the four denotes creative works. There are four seasons. Okay? There are four directions. There are four types of soil in the parable of the sower. And there's four gospels. So these are things, the four gospels are the earthly witness of who Messiah is. And you look at them from four directions. One is the king. One is, one is a suffering servant. You find uh, the, the four gospels revealing to us, one, that he is God, revealing to us Christ from four different directions. Quadraphonic sound, if you, if you will. It is the, um, and it shows what happened on the earth. So the four denotes the creative works and refers to the material uh, earth. Five denotes grace. Now, uh, I've wondered at times, I got away from the study of numbers for a long time because I saw too many wacky things done with them. And so I was preparing for this class and getting ready to take a look at it. I thought I'm going to take a fresh look at these things. Do I throw the all of them out or what? And there's, there is evidence that goes with these things being an important part of getting the, the, the symbolism and typology that we're supposed to get. Uh, it's God adding his blessing to the work of the hands. See, the work of God's hands, the Trinity here is three. The work of his hands is four. And God blessing it is five. It's note also that there are five offerings that denote salvation and the payment for sins. That's a pretty good picture of what grace is all about. Five offerings that are out there. Six is the number of man. He was created on the sixth day. And we are what? All fallen short of the grace of God, haven't we? Number six. Because number seven is the number of spiritual perfection. When I, I was thinking about this going back through here and I was thinking about the way God revealed himself over and over in such obvious ways and how blind we are in so many different ways because how many cultures have a different number other than seven days a week in the history of the world? None. Sounds like a common designer to me. Where did the seven first come from? The seven days of creation, restoration. That's where, that's where it came from. That's seven. On the seventh day he rested. That established the week. The number seven. Shabbat means seven. 
and it is used to refer to seven days, seven weeks, uh, 27, seven units of seven, seven units of seven years. That it is the number seven that is used. It's the number perfection. I also got to thinking about um, uh, the number ten. Number ten is an interesting number too because. Um, especially if you like to watch Monk. He liked to do everything in tens, if I remember right. And it's kind of part of his obsessive-compulsive behavior that he's got to have everything arranged in a time. And I tell you, you got to be careful because I got to watching that stupid show and I'd go into the doctor's office and start rearranging the things on the receptionist's table. And I forgot myself and I go... I gotta stop this. <laughs> this thing'll this'll get you really fast. <laughs> so anyway, that but uh, you know every numerical system we find uses base ten to figure it to figure out numbers. There's a Sumerian history that the first dynasty of Kish, which has uh, got a whole bunch of so-and-so reigned 26,000 years. Then he died. And it, they look back and they go, well, these were mythological creatures. Okay, that's who they were. First dynasty of Kish was all mythology. That's of Sumer, that Sumerian chronology. And then they, they uh, looked at that, that chronology and somebody just tried to take it to a base six. Now, mathematicians know how to do it, where you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and you convert a base 10 system into a base 6 system, and it doesn't work. Couldn't get it to fit. He was trying to shrink it down where it'd be in a different, in a set of numbers that we would recognize and see, and it just wouldn't fit. Now, <clears throat> people have tried to use things other than a base 10 form of, of numbers, but Guess what every place in the world's got? Base 10. That's just the way it works. 8 denotes a new beginning. Thus, resurrection and regeneration. And you start looking at where the number 8 is used. It's kind of interesting. Because how many, um, how many disciples first saw Christ in that room? 8. Remember that? Right after his resurrection, saw the resurrected Christ. Eight of them are there. How many went through the flood of Noah? Eight. What's that a picture of? It's a new beginning. It's regeneration. It is going to start the earth uh, growing in population once again. Interest. Another interesting thing. Why was circumcision on the eighth day? Whenever that was put into the law of Moses... The circumcision shall be on the eighth day. Hmm. That's because it indicates a new beginning. They are past the infant stage, and for the male infants, that they that is the that's the sign for the Abrahamic covenant and the baby Jew. That's what was supposed to happen. Happen. So <clears throat> eight denotes a new beginning. Thus, resurrection, regeneration. Nine denotes the time of visitation. Now, if you're looking at people who have spent their life studying this, uh, there are many that don't assign anything special to this number whatsoever. Uh, E.W. Bullinger that wrote a book on figures of speech and wrote another book on numerology. 
Now, uh, I don't know if he'd probably let me call him E.W. if he was here tonight. He's been dead for a long time. This guy had some real funky ideas, but this guy was brilliant. He had a study ethic that was that was bar none one of the best that I've ever seen. He wrote a, a book called The Companion. I don't think he wrote The Companion Bible, but I think people took the King James and they added his notes into various parts of this of this King James Bible. It's called the Companion Bible. And in the back are about 200 appendices that are added to it that look at different elements. Where the, where the sons of God and the daughters of men of Genesis 6, were they fallen angels or what were they? And he looks at the, at the evidence and he decides what they are. And he goes through and he does that for about 200 separate topics. He's a brilliant man but he got a little bit wacky at times with the numbers because if he saw a number anywhere he was going to make it symbolic and and uh, also with his figures of speech it turns out almost everything in the bible is a figure of speech now okay you don't want everything to be a figure of speech you want it to be literal (laughs) i mean that's the way it should be but he kind of went overboard on that now visitation this term for number nine is attested to by the Jews looking to a time of observation by the Lord. In other words, this eight is this new beginning. And then what would you expect after that? After that, you would expect a time of observation. The Bible uses an interesting term from time to time, and it's called the visitation. When the Lord came, it's called the visitation. When he went down to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a time of visitation is for investigation. And he already knows. He's omniscient, so he's not trying to find out anything new. But that's the way the Bible describes it and calls it the day of visitation. And so many of the Jews look at the number nine as after this new birth and resurrection is a time of inspection that, that goes on. <clears throat> Ten denotes ordinal perfection when numeration commences anew and it frequently denotes the law the ten commandments and that's usually the way that they saw it the decalogue is what it's called deca is ten log is uh, the word a word of ten and that's what the uh, ten commandments is about an ordinal perfection that is there <clears throat> eleven denotes Disorder and disorganization. It's one of those numbers that can't be divided by anything other than itself. Not divided by two. It's one of the <clears throat> prime numbers. And so it's viewed in between ten, which is earthly basic uh, perfection. <clears throat> Eleven is a disorder in between it and twelve, which is governmental perfection. And we start looking at 12. How many, how many places did 12 pop up? Uh, quite frequently. Quite frequently. Then you get a 24 in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. You go, huh, what happened there? Well, that's 2 times 12. Okay. Governmental. Could this be what? Could this be, and it says that they are elders. Maybe as the greatest leaders of the age of Israel and the greatest leaders of the church. 
you start asking questions, and then you ask, is there any backup to it? <coughs> if there's not, it's speculation, and you have to keep that. Uh, you have to keep that attitude. Thirteen denotes rebellion. <coughs> thirteen denotes rebellion. First place, thirteen is used in scriptures. Genesis fourteen four, and we all know that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah got in trouble long before chapter 18, long before the destruction. And what happened? They refused to pay their taxes. And it said they were paying taxes for 12 years, and in the 13th year, they said no. Okay? So it's the first time you see it is a picture of rebellion. Next time you see it in chapter 17, and Ishmael turned 13 <laughs> years old. And things started to go downhill fast. <laughs> so you get a picture of rebellion. That's why part of why they assign that to there. Now here's a fascinating thing. You take the four perfect numbers. <coughs> 3, 7, 10, and 12. <coughs> you multiply them together. 2,520. What a fascinating number that that pops out to. Because what is that? The length of days of the tribulation. 2,520 days. The only place that occurs in scripture. And to be able to take the perfect numbers of the Trinity. Seven, perfection itself, spiritual perfection. Ten of the earthly law, the perfection of the earthly law. And twelve, the divine Law and you multiply those together, 2,520. And what you're going to see in the 2,520 days we know as a tribulation is God is going to perfectly pour out his wrath on mankind who won't repent. We have to look to numbers like other symbols to determine if there's any significance. And the main thing we have to look at is the context. Like anything else, where does it occur? Is it embedded within the type? The tabernacle is called the type. And it's designed to show about Christ. So if we find numbers in there, then they're worth paying attention to. We have to be careful about saying that well, this represents this and this represents this. But we certainly should take a look at what they are. And then an interesting thing about types, symbols, numbers, you don't build doctrines on those. Doctrines are built on clear statements of Scripture. That's what builds doctrines. Not, well, I came up with this number here and this number here, and therefore the doctrine of this must be true. No. Doctrines are built on clear statements of Scripture. And we have to constantly keep that in mind. All the typology, it's a type. It's a symbol. It's built, the doctrine is built on clear statements of Scripture. How do we know that the lamb that is put off, that is offered for a sacrifice, uh, part of the burnt offerings, how do we know that that is a symbol of Christ? Because John said it in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The type is identified by Scripture so we can say, yeah, the Lamb of God is the sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, and that's found in Christ. On that, those things, that's what we build doctrines on. 
not on our interpretation of types and symbols. It's a mistake to do that as a rule. There needs to be good, sufficient scriptural authority to call it a doctrine. It, uh, the sim- symbolism can show that may, can be the symbolic of, the doc- of a doctrine that exists, but it is not the proof of it. It's just representative of it. And we have to keep that straight. Now, I'm rearranging this whole thing. That's as far as I got this morning, honestly, or this afternoon late. Um, and I started to head into the curtains, the linen curtains, and what they meant. You might know, know or remember that there are four sets of curtains over this uh, tabernacle. On the inside are white linens. On the outside are just plain old, yucky old uh, coverings that are put out there. What do they represent? What could they represent? What would we look at to say this represented this or this illustrated this? Because that's that's what we're looking for. We're not trying to build new doctrines off the tabernacle. We're just not trying to do it. We're trying to see what God had revealed and uh, see what the Jews may have been able to get had they just looked. Because uh, you talk about a redeemer... People knew what silver was a picture of for a long time called redemption. And Job in the first book said, I know my Redeemer lives and at the last he shall take his stand on the earth. They knew about the Redeemer already. They knew about the innocent substitute already. They knew about a lot of these things already. So what the tabernacle did was put together a significant advancement for the Jews to be able to come and learn. It was a teaching aid. It was a great big visual aid is what the tabernacle was designed to be. I think Moses had a real good idea of what these things meant. I think Moses probably communicated it to Aaron and the other priests and they probably started off real well like everything else starts off real well and then entropy sets in. It runs from order to disorder. And then they have to have a shot in the arm and they just like, what, what happened in the period of the judges? Oh, that was great for 20 years. That's what we know. After Joshua died, how long did the land have rest? 20 years. Josephus tells us that. He found it out studying the history of the Jews. 20 years. And then the judges started to come along because things started to go sideways. And they'd go downhill and the judge would come along and come back up almost to the level that it was before it went downhill. And it was just a progression. And then you get down to Saul. Hmm. What happened with David? Back up here. High point. What happened with Solomon? Goes down a notch, doesn't it? What happened with the kings that followed? <laughs> till they get sent out into another land. You can see it happen over and over and over in the history of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for this day. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and to to consider your word. And Father, I pray that indeed you would bless this study. I pray that you would guide it in a way that we would be able to understand it properly, that we wouldn't get out of bounds on it. And Father, that we would come away with a greater understanding of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.